to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. The events of 1945 have shaped the way many of us expect a war to end, with a single decisive surrender by representatives of the enemy's head of state. Of course, few wars since then have ended this way, and neither did the Civil War. Most of us know that Appomattox didn't end the fighting, but few of us realize just how fragmentary and chaotic was the process in 1865. One who does is Robert M. Dunkerley, author of To the Bitter End, Appomattox, Bennett Place, and the Surrenders of the Confederacy. We'll talk with Bert Dunkerley tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the sheltering-in-place location on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not from the campus of East Carolina University, and not speaking for ECU either, or speaking for anyone else. My guest likewise speaks only for himself, as has been true not just tonight, but on all the previous 499 episodes. Tonight is the 500th episode of Civil War Talk Radio, not something I would have imagined 15 years ago. Uh, it is thanks to many people that we are here, 
want to say thanks to some of them tonight, uh, to Andrew, who's engineering the show tonight, his predecessor, A-Rod, and the previous engineers over those 15 years, and everyone at Voice America, our corporate overlords who manage uh, the station and World Talk Radio, which was, I think, the previous incarnation of Voice America. And especially, uh, special thanks above all to Mark Gaffney, who started the Impediments of War website and Facebook page. When this show started uh, 15 years ago, there was a website affiliated with the show and the producers, the, the internet radio station, and every week I would send images of the book covers if the show was about a book and a short description. But at some point, ownership changed, and the website was just shut down one day, and I, it was gone, and, and the years well, hours each week for several years that I'd put into it, it all disappeared. And I just was not going to restart that again. That was that was really discouraging. Uh, but Mark Gaffney, who I did not know, uh, started his own website to fill the gap and has been doing it ever since uh, for at least uh, 10 years now, more than that, I think. We would not have the Civil War talk radio community without his work, so I'm very grateful for that. Well, it is the... Last Wednesday of April 2020, still sheltering in place here in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, teaching online as the spring semester nears its end, I recorded the last lectures for my courses yesterday. We'll be moving into exams now. Online teaching is, reminds me of, of Clausewitz's famous comment that in war, everything is simple but the simplest thing is difficult. Uh, so it is. It, it, everything is simple, putting stuff online. It, it's just that it always it, it takes longer. For example, I have a map question on most final exams. And uh, last summer, I learned how to put those online. But when I tried to transfer that over from the old learning system to the new one, turns out the new one doesn't have that capability. I ended up creating a, a workaround using a different way to do a map question with a matching tech, technique, matching format. The details go on. The point is what in the old days would have taken a few minutes to review and upgrade uh, for the current semester and then hand off to a graduate assistant to make copies for the students. The whole thing would take 10 minutes. Last night, it took 15 minutes trying to find out how do you import this from the old one to the new system, five minutes to discover it can't be done, and then have a tantrum walking around the house cursing, uh, then sit down and spend 45 minutes trying to figure out a workaround and implement that. And So the whole thing ends up taking an hour uh, instead of a few minutes. But uh, moving on to positive things, the campus here at East Carolina University is planning to open in the fall. That's at least the current word. The the chancellor, interim chancellor, is talking about controlled conditions, smaller and shorter classes, lots of testing and tracing and all kinds of things. But at least there's a goal in sight now of actually being back on campus in the fall. Certainly hope that's true. Certainly hope we can resume doing Civil War tours, Stephen Ambrose historical tours in the fall. Uh, October 9 through 17 is the next rendition of uh, This Hallowed Ground, and I hope you can join me for that. hope we can 
can carry that off. Uh, but if, if we're able to go, uh, I'll be there. Hope you can do it too. There are other fall events. The Association of Licensed Battlefield Guides at Gettysburg has a seminar on overlooked and rarely visited places from October 23rd and 24th. Go to their website, learn about that. And go to impedimentsofwar.org, as mentioned a few minutes ago. Find out what we're going to do on the show. We will not have a live show next week, May 6th, because it will be final exams here at ECU, and I will be busy grading all day and all night uh, to get the grades turned in in time. It's not so much that there isn't time to take an hour out to do the show, but there isn't time to read the book and prepare for it during the week ahead. So uh, so no live show next week, but we'll be back. Uh, May 13th, Brian Lusky has written, Men is Cheap, Exposing the Frauds of Free Labor in Civil War America. I have not read it yet. Not even sure what it's about, but sounds interesting. Uh, on the 20th, Tim Smith, Timothy B. Smith, returns to the show. He's been here before. His new book is on the Grant's first attacks at Vicksburg, the Union assaults at Vicksburg. Uh, Grant attacks Pemberton, May 17 to 22, 1863. We've got Zachary Fry on the 27th of May, Republic in the Ranks, Loyalty and Dissent in the Army of the Potomac. And I'll go ahead and give you the rest of the uh, season here in June. Christopher Klein has a interesting uh, story. Well, the title tells us, When the Irish Invaded Canada, the incredible true story of the Civil War veterans who fought for Ireland's freedom. On June 10th, Matt Gallman comes back to the show. He co-edited two books with Gary Gallagher. We talked with Gary about one of them last season, and we'll talk with Matt about the other one, which is called Lens of War, exploring iconic photographs of the Civil War. The show for June 17th, still firming it up with the author, so I'll leave you in suspense for that. And we'll finish the season on June 24th, a remarkable book on a topic that I'm expecting to learn a lot about. Kenneth Rutherford is the author, and the book is titled America's Buried History, Landmines in the Civil War. So lots of interesting stuff coming up. Uh, Join us for it and uh, check us out online and go to the Facebook page and uh, lots, lots to do there. Well, tonight we are looking at the end of the Civil War with uh, a book in the Emerging Civil War series from Savas Beatty Publishers. And Emerging Civil War constantly comes up with interesting new ideas and new people to present them. Uh, This book is called To the Bitter End, Appomattox, Bennett Place, and the Surrenders of the Confederacy. The author is Robert M. Dunkerley. Mr. Dunkerley, are you there? Hi, yes. Welcome to the show. Thank you, and it's uh, exciting to be number 500. Yeah, it it, it wasn't planned any particular way. Uh, I, I... I think maybe this being the end of the Civil War in, in, as your book topic uh, doesn't mean we're at the end of the show, but uh, uh, but I, I'm excited that we, we got this far at least. So um, it, you go by Bert, is that correct? Uh, yeah. Based on your yeah. signature? And, and call me Jerry, please, too. 
keep okay. things moving. Um, <clears throat> Bert, you work for a national park service or have worked? What What is your day job when when not yeah, quarantined? I, I currently work at Richmond National Battlefield Park in Virginia, and I've worked at several other revolutionary and civil war sites. So, how are you coping with the uh, with with the uh, quarantine with the coronavirus situation at at Richmond? Well, like a lot of park sites, our grounds are open, but our visitor centers are closed. Mm-hmm. And right now we're doing, kind of like you, we've switched everything online. So we're doing presentations and programs digitally, and uh, we're having some success with that, seem to have some good followings. Um, I'm not sure what the summer will bring, but we're just going to do the best we can. Now, I'm having uh, increasingly frequent senior moments where I cannot remember the name of a place I visited, uh, a fort outside of Richmond uh, where no one seems to go. It's sort of on the edge of a suburb, uh, but some beautiful earthworks preserved there, a log cabin-style uh, visitor center. Does that ring a bell to you? Y- yes. Uh, that would be Fort Harrison, That's which it, was... Yes. Uh, part of the outer defenses of Richmond, and that's one of the sites in our park. I, I visited it last year on the way back to Greenville from uh, from, from doing one of the Stephen Ambrose historical tours in, in Virginia, Maryland, and, and Pennsylvania. And I thought, what a great site that is. It, it Not a lot of people there. I was able to walk around it and really get a sense, you know, just commune with the grounds because it was not full of other people. Uh, and it seems to me that'd be a place people could still visit today. You could keep your social distance and and learn about that and, and not not be violating any, uh, any rules. Absolutely. There's a, a walking trail and plenty of room to spread out on the grounds and the earthworks are impressive, as you know. Yeah, they're 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 really when you, when you, you can walk on both sides of them, you can see them from from the attacker side and the defender side, and you really see uh, how imposing they were. So you've worked at various places. What connected you to the surrender story, or what attracted you to write about the story of the Confederacy's surrenders? The the park I worked at before coming to Richmond was Appomattox Courthouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, so obviously I got to research that story pretty thoroughly. Uh, but even before that, I've always been interested in um, certain topics of the war. And I have a, a filing system at home where if I come across something interesting, I file it away. Mm. And I might get to it later or the file might just keep growing. And I started to just doing some other research, uh, come across some accounts about uh, a surrender and troops dispersing in Louisiana, which I'd never heard of. And I started to collect information about uh, the end of the war in Alabama, which I wasn't familiar with. And finally, I got to the point where I, I dove into that research and pulled out the files that I'd been collecting and the information I had stashed away and started to, to work on it as a project. And I, it's, it's just fascinating. I really enjoyed researching this story. 
Well, it was a very interesting book to read to uh, because so much of it is not commonly known. Everybody knows uh, the outlines of the Appomattox story, certainly. But one of the points you, you make repeatedly is that this Appomattox is not the archetypal surrender. It's it's really different from most of them. How In what ways is it different from most of the others? Absolutely. Appomattox is the only surrender that unfolds the way it does. The other surrenders are, are entirely different. Um, Appomattox is the only surrender in which uh, both armies are physically present. The in, in the week leading up to the surrender at Appomattox, the two armies had been uh, marching and fighting almost daily as the Confederates evacuated Richmond and Petersburg in early April of 1865. Um, it, it's a week of constant marching and fighting. They get to Appomattox. There's a final battle. There's no final battle at any of the other surrender sites uh, because the two armies were, were separated. But at Appomattox, they're in contact. Uh, There's fighting the very day of the surrender meeting. And uh, Appomattox would also be the only surrender in which there was a formal ceremony in which the Confederate troops would turn over their weapons and uh, march in a formation to formally do that. The other surrenders did not include that, that process. So there, there's a sense of closure about Appomattox uh, that, that we have. It's also possible to visit Appomattox. Uh, it, it's a really dramatic and evocative site, whereas you, you write about how many of the other places are almost forgotten. Right. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons why Appomattox is, is well-remembered. Uh, it is kind of a neat uh, an uplifting story in a lot of ways. There is a, a national historic park there. There are parks at some of the other surrender sites or museums, but um, Appomattox has the big names. Uh, Lee, Grant, Custer, uh, all those people are there. And the other surrenders are, they're not nice, neat stories. Um, there's a lot of bitterness, there's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of uh, back and forth, and, and the, the stories get very convoluted. So um, I think all those things tie together, the, the lack of preservation at some of those sites and the fact that the stories are more complicated and don't necessarily have nice, neat endings. Uh, that affects our, our memory of those uh, stories. And memory is one of the issues, again, which you address uh, in your, your last chapter, that is certainly you know, central to a lot of Civil War studies today. Most people listening to the show uh, certainly have read Chamberlain's account of the uh, surrender ceremony where his men salute the oncoming Confederate troops who return the salute, and, and it's, it is a, a feel-good moment. But you know, Chamberlain writes numerous accounts uh, over his lifetime, and then things evolve a little bit. And uh, he also writes about the, he has a rather caustic exchange with uh, General Wise immediately after that moment, uh, who's not the least bit reconstructed or willing to uh, show any respect to the, the United States troops. So, uh, but but the account that's remembered at the park is, is the, the mutual salute, and, and that that is tempting to remember. We're going to take a, a short break, come back, 
talk about these other surrenders that we don't know so much about. We're talking tonight with Bert Dunkerley. He's the author of To the Bitter End, Appomattox, Bennett Place, and the Surrenders of the Confederacy. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. For Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with Robert M. Dunkerley, author of To the Bitter End, Appomattox, Bennett Place, and the Surrenders of the Confederacy. We started out talking about Appomattox in the first segment. That's the one we all think of when we think of the Confederacy surrendering. But as uh, Bert, as you pointed out, that's not not even the largest Confederate surrender, much less the, the typical one for all the reasons uh, we were discussing a minute ago, the two armies in proximity formal surrender ceremony. Uh, there's a much larger army, Confederate army at this time, in North Carolina under Joe Johnston. I was interested uh, to learn about the morale of that army before the surrender. You point out that one of the things that really uh, hit them hard was that they were completely reorganized, which strikes me as having, obviously, the effect of... of, of uh, you know, changing unit morale, but also suggests that Johnson was planning for a long campaign. He was—he didn't see this as the end of the line if he's spending all this time reorganizing his army in April 1865. Right. The, uh, the Army of Tennessee, which has been brought to North Carolina, and they fought at Bentonville and Averysboro, uh, 
that army has been through a lot, uh, mm-hmm. uh, thrashed pretty badly at Nashville and um, been through a lot of other hard campaigns. And a lot of units are under strength. Johnston will reorganize the army. He'll consolidate units, like you mentioned, and that obviously has the, you know, the impact of losing that unit pride and, um, you know, the obviously visible thinning ranks uh, when you consolidate so many units. And Johnston should get, I think, some credit for keeping that army in the field and keeping it out of danger because as General Sherman, who commands the Union forces in North Carolina, as he advances uh, west towards Raleigh, uh, Johnson keeps his army out of harm's way. He pulls it back through Raleigh, through Hillsboro, towards Greensboro. Uh, he preserves his line of, uh, lines of communication and supply uh, to the southwest. And he keeps his army in a position where it can still fight and maneuver if it wants to. So what brings them to the point where they realize, even though he's still got an army in the field, uh, you point out they've they've got open supply lines. They're 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 able to maneuver, able to fight. What what brings them to the point of surrender? A couple things. Um, as they pull back through the Raleigh, Durham, Hillsboro area, they get news of the fall of Richmond, and that's a real blow. Of course, the city of Richmond's held out for for four years, and they learned that the Union armies captured it. Lee's been driven out. And then they start to hear rumors about a surrender, the surrender of Lee's army. And that becomes confirmed when Confederate soldiers with parole passes start walking home through the camps of the Army of Tennessee. Uh, Lee's troops were issued parole passes, it was a. Uh, it was how they were released. The men were given a slip of paper and allowed to go home, and so they start walking south. The ones who live down in, in the deep south, and so they pass through North Carolina, and just imagine the impact of uh, the, the men of the Army of Tennessee who have to stay and fight, and then these guys are walking home with a slip of paper saying that they're free to go. Uh, so. The effect on the morale of the Army of Tennessee is is dramatic. Um, men start to desert, they start to get drunk, they start to get disorderly, and the uh, situation goes downhill pretty fast. Now, Lee's men are going home, so they're not marching home as whole regiments or brigades. Uh, they're, they're going home in small groups. Why not just go home as a whole unit back to Georgia, let's say? Actually, some of them do. Um, when they leave Appomattox, they're free to just go. Um, their military service is done. But a lot of them will, will march together because if they're raised in the same town or county, they're going to the same place anyway. And they, they maintain a sort of level of discipline as they go. You know, they're marching home. Uh, they're, they're used to marching <laughs> So they do. They do travel in groups as unofficial units, um, and they travel certain corridors uh, following the roads. Railroads really weren't in operation in that area, but um, they do tend to travel in units. 
but they're not being supplied by the Army of Northern Virginia anymore, though. They, they're how, how do they get along? How do they how do they eat? Good question. Um, <laughs> a lot of them will rely on the generosity of the people that that they pass on the way home. <clears throat> Obviously, there are certain quarters, like I mentioned, uh, going south or or west or whatever, where um, civilians along those routes cannot supply these hundreds of thousands of men marching by. But one of the things that Grant had arranged at Appomattox was that the paroled Confederates could use their parole pass to draw rations at any Union Army supply depot. And so all the Confederate soldiers had to do was show up at any Union military post and present their pass, and they could draw rations like any Union soldier. It was a generous offer meant to help the men get home uh, to ensure that they would get home with provisions. And those parole passes also allowed the Confederates to use any Union military railroad line or uh, the Navy, the Navy ships. So if there was a working railroad <laughs> going the way you needed to go, you could ride the rails. And a lot of the men from the deep South, like um, Louisiana and Texas, they will actually go from Appomattox to Norfolk, and the Union Navy will take them home. So it, it's really a good deal. And, and this means Johnston's men are seeing these guys walk by with a piece of paper that will, at least in theory, get them fed, get them transportation. So now they're thinking, you know, that's maybe not such a bad deal. Uh, the negotiations between Johnston and Sherman uh, that take place at, at Bennett Place are notable. And, and again, I, most listeners will know the story that they, it's not like Lee and Grant sitting down at a table, sign a paper, done deal. There's There's some back and forth there. Can you talk about that? Sure. And that, that gets back to another point about Appomattox is the only surrender that it, it only took one meeting to get it done. Uh, all the other surrenders are going to take multiple meetings. And in the case of uh, the Bennett Place, the, the generals will meet twice. Uh, the first time they meet at, at the Bennett Farm, which was just literally between the two armies, a uh, random place that they chose, uh, Sherman and Johnston and a couple of their officers will get together and they, they both realize they want the war to end, uh, and they want to do as much as they can to end the fighting. Johnston not only commands the Army of Tennessee, he commands the Department of the Carolinas, Georgia, and Florida. So it, it's, a, it's a geographic area that Johnston is in charge of. So every Confederate soldier in those states falls under his orders. And so he and Sherman work out an arrangement where the Army of Tennessee will be disbanded, turn in their weapons, go home. All the Confederate troops in those states, clear down to Florida, will also be included. And they go a step further, which Sherman did not have the authority to do. Uh, they reestablish uh, courts and state governments. They allow, actually, the existing Confederate state governments to keep functioning to maintain a level of civil authority and law and order. 
And what's happened in the meantime is Lincoln's been assassinated. Uh, he was assassinated uh, just a few days after Appomattox. And so the mood in the North and in Congress is not very forgiving. And uh, Sherman and Johnston walk away from that meeting feeling pretty good, but then Sherman will be told that those terms are rejected, and he will have to offer the same terms that Grant gave at Appomattox, which did not touch on political or civil matters. And that, which makes sense, as you pointed out, Sherman didn't have authority to to treat on political matters. And this is, goes beyond anything you discuss in the book, but it's not uncommon to find writers who seem to imply uh, too bad. If only we'd been able to keep the existing governments, things would have gone smoothly. But of course, the uh, under presidential reconstruction and Johnson's, uh, not Johnston, but Andrew Johnson's amnesty plan, uh, the Confederates do basically reinstitute the uh, the old state governments and their that's where you get the black codes and the ex-Confederates get sent to Washington in 1865 and Congress has to say, wait a minute, I thought you guys lost the war. You can't just do all this over again. <laughs> uh, so had they stayed in power, it's not sure. I'm not sure how long that would have lasted. But exactly. what I was struck by in, in your writing was how confusing this was for the soldiers, that they're they're on the brink of surrender. They can see this. They're watching Johnson's men see Lee's guys walking through their camps. Then they get the word a deal's been struck, and President uh, Davis has approved it. And so they're done. They're they're mentally checked out. The war's over. And then they get the word, no, you've got to pick up your guns and get back in line. The war's back on. That must have been just inconceivable. Yeah, and that's something that really stood out to me as I read accounts of these soldiers. And the thing that I thought about was, you know, as difficult as Appomattox was for the men in the Army of Northern Virginia, it was over very quickly. They didn't have time to think about it. They're marching for a solid week to have a final battle. And then that very afternoon, Lee and Grant meet, and it's over. I mean, their head must have been spinning. It happened fast. But if you're a soldier in the Army of Tennessee, there's this long, drawn-out campaign. You pull back across the state uh, to camp near Greensboro, and then you, you hear about Appomattox. You, you know that Sherman and Johnston are negotiating. You hear about this truce, and then, then you hear it's been rejected, and the troops are going to be get, given marching orders again. Um, so you had time to process it. You had time to think about it. And it, it just would have been mentally exhausting for these men. And, and they could see, certainly, the writing on the wall by this time. I mean, one of the things that that you, you get a sense of maybe visiting Appomattox, and that, that it's hard for us to grasp otherwise, is that right up to the very end, Many of Lee's troops don't think this is the end. They're thinking of George Washington at Valley Forge uh, with just a few thousand half-naked, frozen guys, and they're still going to win the American Revolutionary War. So they're thinking they're in the same boat. Yeah, it looks bad, but Washington won, so we're going to win. But by the time you get to Bennett Place, they've got to be thinking if Lee's been defeated, we're really not going to win. 
Absolutely. Um, and the Confederates did look to the American Revolution, uh, both sides did, for inspiration. Mm-hmm. And the, the clear analogy, you know, Washington's army was outnumbered, Washington was a Virginian. Um, it looked pretty dark in those days up until Yorktown. And Lee had always gotten his troops out of a tight spot. Um, but for the for the troops in North Carolina, um, it, you know, it really speaks to Lee's power and his image as uh, the Confederacy's premier general. When Lee surrendered, yeah, it's it's over. There's no getting beyond that. Now, the uh, the one guy who doesn't give up, and he passes through the through the the encampments of the our Army of Tennessee or what's left of it is uh, is Jefferson Davis. You note that there are signs in little towns throughout uh, North Carolina and heading down towards Georgia that are like the George Washington slept here signs that you can find in <laughs> little towns. Uh, Jefferson Davis passed through here during the, during his last retreat. What uh, I guess the only question is what was he thinking? Yeah, it's in a way it's kind of funny because um, there is a last Confederate cabinet meeting sign <laughs> marker in uh, North Carolina. There's one in South Carolina. <laughs> Depends on what you call a meeting. Uh, because as they retreat south, uh, the men are dropping out of the cabinet and the government um, until it's just a small group at the end. But uh, Davis, give him credit, he he's determined. Uh, he, his intention is to get to the Trans-Mississippi and continue the war from the Texas area. And he gets as far as South Georgia before he's captured by Union cavalry, beginning of May. So there's never a, he never surrenders. There's no formal uh, surrender of the Confederacy as a a, a proto nation. There's there's just a, a series of military surrenders. I guess that's part of the chaos of the whole scenario. Exactly, and that's an important point. Is the Confederate government does not surrender. The Confederate government just falls apart. Uh, so the way the war ends is these individual armies surrender on their own. Or in a lot of cases, soldiers just soldiers in garrison or in small camps just just go home. And and there are a lot of soldiers. There's like over forty thousand are covered by the Bennett Place surrender, and I think you said it was twenty eight thousand at Appomattox. But there are yep. still other uh, lots of other Confederates uh, further west. The um, so let's let's talk about where where else do we see big surrenders happening? Well, after the North Carolina surrender, which is in uh, late April, the next the next one that takes place is in Alabama. Uh, the Confederates have a Department of Alabama, Mississippi, and East Louisiana, and uh, General Richard Taylor is in charge of that department. And his opposite, commanding Union forces, is General Edward Canby. And, you know, a lot of these things are happening simultaneously. Uh, Union forces will attack the Confederate defenses around Mobile. That's where the two armies are. On April 9th, which is the same day that things are happening in Appomattox. And the Confederates will evacuate Mobile on April 12th. 
which is the same day that the Confederate infantry surrenders their weapons at Appomattox. And so the Confederate army pulls away from Mobile and actually up into Mississippi near Meridian, and Union forces occupy Mobile. And again, the two commanders will meet in the middle. News has filtered down about what's happened in Virginia and North Carolina, and uh, Taylor realizes that the, the game is up. They meet at a private home, uh, kind of like with the McLean house at Appomattox. They, they, you know, they find a random house uh, between the lines. And uh, interesting point, that's the only original surrender site that still stands. The McLean House at Appomattox is a reconstruction. It, and, and as is Bennett Place, um, I want right. to ask about that, the, the, the McGee House, uh, a little more, but we're going to take a short break first. We'll come back, talk more with our guest tonight, Robert M. Dunkerley, author of To the Bitter End, Appomattox, Bennett Place, and the Surrenders of the Confederacy. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Bert Dunkerley, author of To the Bitter End, Appomattox, Bennett Place, and the Surrenders of the Confederacy. In the last segment, I think I misspoke and said there were 40,000 people surrendered at Bennett Place, and I'm looking at Appendix A and seeing it's more like 89,000. That's the the biggest of the surrenders, Uh, and I wanted to correct that before going any further. 
Bert, we were talking about the uh, the houses where these happen, the McLean House at Appomattox and uh, the others. One other quick interjection while we're at Appomattox, uh, you acknowledge Chris Bingham, one of your colleagues there, and I want to shout out to him. He is a ECU Pirate alumni, uh, one of our graduates, <laughs> yes. uh, so always want to get that word in there. Uh, the McLean House that that we can visit today is a reconstruction uh, on the site of where the original was. But you said there's one surrender house that is the original house, uh, even with some of the original furniture still in it. Uh, where is that one? Yeah, the the only original surrender house on the same site and the same location, never been moved, is the McGee Jacob McGee House. It's uh, just north of Mobile, Alabama. And it sat along a road and a railroad line uh, coming out of the city. And that's where um, Taylor and Canby will meet at the end of April. It's April 29th. And um, the house, you know, obviously didn't get the fame and attention that the McLean house did in, in Appomattox. And it remained in private ownership. Uh Maybe 10, 15 years ago, um, uh, a, a local group purchased the house and, and opened a museum there. They didn't get a lot of visitation. It's a pretty remote area. It uh, doesn't see a lot of Civil War tourism. And so the museum closed, but I was fortunate enough to talk to the owner of the house, and he let me in and gave me a little mm-hmm. tour. Pretty incredible. Wow. So it did see it just by yourself with the owner so is it in private hands today it it is now there is a historic marker in front and there's a there's a place to pull over so you can you can pull off the highway and get out of your car and and look at the marker and look at the house you can't go up to it but you can at least look at it get a picture well, it, it's it's curious what things do and don't get preserved. One of the things your book does, as as many of the emerging Civil War series books do, is it includes addresses of places like this. Uh, it's not a, a guidebook. It's not a travel book uh, as such, but it, it would be a good book to take with you if you're traveling on the Appomattox uh, Lee Trail or following Jefferson Davis or going to uh, the McGee House or Bennett Place or any of these, it'd be a very useful thing to have. So uh, the uh, so you have a, another big surrender there of troops uh, from Mobile northward up through uh, Montgomery on into Mississippi. Then uh, when people think of the, the holdouts of the last surrenders, uh, we tend to think of the the Trans-Mississippi, the the place where Edmund Kirby Smith is is hanging on, his troops don't surrender in April. They they hang in there for another month or so. Is that right? Yes. And again, part of it is that the Confederate forces in the Trans-Mississippi Department are uh, insulated from Union attack. There there's no Union army threatening them. The Confederate Army is concentrated around Shreveport in western Louisiana, and the Union forces are in New Orleans. There's no active campaign to go after them. And, you know, the Trans-Mississippi was kind of its own little world um, in that the troops there were fairly well supplied. Uh, 
they they were cut off from the rest of the Confederacy, and Smith uh, did a good job of keeping his army in the field and provisioned. So they're going to be the last organized surrender, and I would say the one with the most twists and turns. The, the twists and turns, they are remarkable. Uh, one thing that, that I thought was especially interesting was how everybody knows Lee's farewell address to his troops. Uh, we've all read it. It's a magnificent uh, piece of writing and uh, a gesture to these men who fought so long uh, in, in such difficult circumstances. Out across the Mississippi, though, you've got speeches by guys like Smith or uh, uh, Thompson where their farewell is to rip their troops a new one. Uh, what was going on there? Yeah, um, I couldn't agree more. So in the case of the um, the Trans-Mississippi Department, uh, the men start to desert, they start to get unruly, and uh, Smith will actually go to Texas. He He wants to establish a new base for his army, and he leaves his second-in-command, uh, General Buckner. And Buckner sees that things are going downhill. He goes down to New Orleans to meet with Canby and arranges a surrender. But he is only second-in-command. When Smith finds out what has happened, uh, he, he gives a speech saying that, you know, you've made your decision. It was unwise. It was unpatriotic. Uh, it goes on in those terms. But it's been done. The troops are leaving. Um, there's nothing that can be done about it. So he will go and meet Canby in Galveston um, and arrange for the final, do the final surrender ceremony, uh, sign the paperwork there on a Union warship in Galveston Harbor. And then there's another force in Arkansas, about 7,000 Confederate troops under General Jeff, uh, Jefferson Thompson. And he is very demanding. He wants to know exactly what terms are being offered to these other armies. Um, he insists on doing things his way during the surrender proceedings. And he ha he has his troops assemble at a town in, in Arkansas called Jacksonport. And he is on a steamship while his troops are on shore, and he addresses them. And I would like to just briefly quote Yes. Uh, he's not happy with a lot of his troops. Uh, there had been a lot of desertion and um, felt that his men were not faithful to the cause. So uh, he, he says, among other things, um, many of the 8,000 men I now see around me have been skulking for the last three years in the swamps. And he goes on and he concludes by saying, uh, those of you who have been good, honest, and brave soldiers have nothing to fear. But I warn those of you who have been nothing but sneaking, cowardly jayhawkers, cutthroats and thieves, that a just retribution awaits you. And I hope to God that the federal authorities will hang you wherever and whenever they find you. And then it starts a shouting match. The, the men start yelling uh, from, from onshore at him, and he's yelling back at them. And it's just a very undignified uh, farewell speech. Now, now that's leadership. That's... <laughs> <laughs> that is that that is really something. It, it is it, one of the many surreal scenes that you describe. You you talk about the um, I won't call them the surrenders, but uh, as you go further west, you have the Indian nations, 
the Gadawa and others who have fought on the side of the Confederacy, and now they have to make an arrangement with the United States. But they these are more like treaties with sovereign nations than they are surrenders of armies. Exactly. The Native American groups considered themselves independent nations. And when the war started, you know, they they had a relationship with the United States that was not the best. So mm-hmm. they sided with a lot of them, sided with the Confederacy and signed treaties with the Confederate government. And then as the war is ending in the spring of 1865, those nations will literally uh, reject their treaties with the Confederate government, and they'll reach out to Union authorities uh, in the Oklahoma Territory, and they will sign new treaties of friendship with the United States government. And that happens through the summer into the fall, into September of 1865. So the process is continuing. It's not just uh, one day at Appomattox, not even one month in April, it, uh, but it continues into May and then later into the year. Uh, the the last bit, you, you have some appendices uh, in the book written by some of your colleagues. Uh, you mentioned, uh, where, where do we see the last Confederate flag brought down? A lot of the listeners might know this, but the the CSS Shenandoah, the uh, Confederate ship that had been sailing around the world and was, you know, obviously out of touch with the happenings, um, will arrive in Liverpool in November and learn what's happened to their nation. And they'll just simply, uh, the crew will just simply split up and and go. Um, They turn the ship over to the British authorities and... uh, they just make their way home however they can do so. So no no retribution for them. Is yeah. Let me ask a, a question. You you mentioned a little bit about the the last person killed in the war, which no one wants to be. Uh, does it matter if we know who the last person killed was? I would say it doesn't necessarily matter from an an academic standpoint, but I think from a human interest standpoint, it does. Um, You know, we we all, I guess, are drawn to that, you know, that tragic, random type of of event that it, it could have happened to anybody. It could have been anywhere, but it was this person in this place and the impact on their family. Um, what are the chances? And, and I think that's what draws us to those kind of, of stories. So, so who would you say, from what you've read, would be the last casualty? I'm trying to remember. I, the last battle of the war was Palmetto Ranch in South Texas, a Confederate mm-hmm. victory. But there was, you know, there was bushwhacking and violence throughout the South as Union troops start to occupy and we go into Reconstruction, right. and Confederate troops are, are, are still going home, some of them with arms, and we know that there's clashes, uh, not necessarily battles, but there's uh, some small gunfights uh, between mm-hmm. Confederates going home and Union occupation troops. Um, I, I guess so, that makes sense. Yeah. That, that that's maybe what I'm thinking of. That the you know, uh, 
Vernon Burton has made the argument of that this is the age of Lincoln stretches from 1830 to 1880. Uh, the the struggle between North and South doesn't end on a dime, as you very clearly show. It takes a it sputters and fits and starts for months. Uh, so and then it continues into Reconstruction. But we have just a minute left, and I want to ask the the Civil War talk radio time machine question uh, that I often ask. Uh, normally, I would ask someone, who would you want to meet if you could go back for uh, 30 minutes? Let me ask, which surrender ceremony would you wish you could have been able to witness of the ones you've written about? I think we we know a good bit about Appomattox and Bennett Place and, mm-hmm. uh, and even Alabama. We don't know a lot of details about the negotiations between uh, Stan Wadey, uh, the Cherokee mm-hmm. Confederate general. Uh, he met with a Union colonel, happened to be the nearest Union officer. Um, it, the other meetings had witnesses. People wrote down uh, what happened. They don't always agree, but in that case, uh, there's really no documentation, and it just would have been interesting to hear what what did they talk about, and, uh, and just that, to know those details. <laughs> That's a great historian's answer. That uh, for all the pageantry of seeing Appomattox, I want to know the thing we don't know about yet. That that's a that that. Uh, I, I totally get that. That makes a lot of sense. Well, we are out of time, as the Confederacy was by 1865. Uh, so I want to leave listeners with the uh, idea that the book To the Bitter End, Appomattox, Bennett Place, and the Surrenders of the Confederacy tells a fascinating story. It's brief. It's illustrated with a lot of photographs. There are great maps, Hal Jesperson. You all know him. Uh, he does the maps. Uh, really an interesting piece of work to take with you when you go to these out-of-the-way but important places in the history of the Civil War. Bert, thank you f- so much for joining me tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.